All right. <clears throat> Hello, everybody. Good to have you by. It's Thursday night. It's the last Thursday, the last day, and truly the final hours of August 2023. It's just incredible, isn't it? It'll never get any less incredible. In fact, I should have brought that excerpt from Ray Bradbury about time with me tonight. I think I was going to do that some other time, but uh, maybe I'll do it for tomorrow since we'll be casting off into the weekend. It'll officially be September, and uh, and yeah, we'll be putting a, a bow on another great week. Now, tonight we've got a fantastic guest. His name is Mr. Mike King, and he started the Profiling Evil channel on YouTube's got the profiling evil uh, website a lot of other affiliated social media and also books that have been published and just a 40-year career in law enforcement and tonight we're gonna be able to talk about profiling serial killers and some big cases that he has worked and other cases that he follows to this day it's gonna be a great great show and hopefully we have a little time for some calls in the end although I'm not sure because once we get off the phone with Mike, we may only have just enough time to read your Super Chats and then end by 8.30 so that I can launch the finale book club session for The Devil in the White City. Talk about true crime. Oh, man. I hope that more and more of you just pull the trigger and become uh, participants in these book clubs. Uh, They are really, really something else. Um, and I'm talking to all of you monthly subscribers too, who don't. I mean, there's plenty of monthly subscribers that don't that don't do book club. So I mean, you need to be a monthly subscriber to be in on it. By the way, I have two I have two monthly subscriber giveaways to announce tonight. One for July that we forgot, and also the August winners. I'm going to do that right now since we're not going to be taking an intermission. Hold on one second, and I'll get that up. That's right. So what are we doing for the the giveaway? Well, here's in, in, in July. Ladies and gents, the July winner is Beth McKay. Beth McKay is the July winner. Now, she's going to get a pocket, one of my pocket constitutions, and with it, also a copper round. Copper round with Donald Trump's face on it. And uh, I can't wait to uh, send that off. Just a little something. You, if you're a monthly subscriber, there's so many things that you get as universal perks. Um, but one of the other things that you get is you always have your name entered into the drawing for these giveaways. And now for August, Beth McKay out there just got herself a, a round of copper and also a pocket constitution. I'll scribble something in there for her. And now for August, our August winner is a longtime Squarespace. Uh, Beth McKay is from Subscribestar, but our longtime Squarespace, that's directly through quitefrankly.tv, sponsor's name is John Mokodine. And John has won not only a copper round, but he is going to be able to take his pick of any of the $22 and less Mothman t-shirts that are on uh, listed on the Mothman Museum uh, merchandise store that I uh, I worked that out with with Jeff Wamsley from last night's show. So I'm going to contact Beth and John after the show. 
We'll see what John, uh, which uh, Mothman shirt John wants, and that'll be it. And congratulations. If you want to be in these drawings, become a monthly sponsor. It takes as little as $2 a month, which means as little as $24 a year for a show that you enjoy for over sometimes 12, 13, 14 hours a week. Okay? Um, and then even more when you consider your Sunday streams and you consider the Saturday night specials. And we always do a little bit overtime and more and more coming now that I have broadcast capability coming to my home office. So become a sponsor, help the show grow in the coming months and years. All right. That's all I have for you right now. That's all I have. We got Mike King on tonight and then Matt will probably be in the studio tomorrow. Let's get into our grab bag for the evening and see what the hell else is. Uh, where's the, where's the chill? There you go. Perfect. What else do we have for the grab bag? Oh, I see. I see where we're at. First one up is from the Daily Mail. This is going to make your your blood run cold or boiling hot since we're talking about climate change. One billion people, this is the headline, one billion people will die from climate change by the year 2100, study claims. What the study should say is one billion people will die by 2100. So help us God. Okay. Because climate change is not going to kill a billion people. Um, people will. People, certain people will. Scientists have given a terrifying prediction about the future of humanity on the planet. According to experts in Canada, which is automatically gives them a, a great a great deal of uh, legitimacy. One billion people, that's one-eighth of the current population, will die due to climate change if global warming reaches or exceeds 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit or 2 degrees centigrade by 2100. Uh, most of those, who, you know, Aurora is going to be 80 years old in the year 2100. 80. My baby is going to be 80 years old, God willing. Wow. Wow. I'll be like 125 or something like that. I'll still be able to do a few pull-ups, but she's going to be 80, my baby. No, I'll be 115, am I thinking about? 115 years old. I'll still be able to do at least 10 pull-ups. Most of those who die will be poorer humans living in the developing world, they say, while the ones contributing to mass fatalities will likely be the top executives at multi-billion dollar oil and gas companies. Oh, oh, is, is that what it is? Because I, th I thought it was the... Uh, I thought it was China and India. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't think you got this one right there, Canada. Deaths will be triggered by various catastrophes, including flooding due to melt. Oh, you know what's going on. Anyway, they just want to let you know that um, that in about seventy-five years or so, they're going to have figured out, or at least they hope to have figured out, how to get at least a billion people off the planet. Um, and you know, it's all about reducing the population of the third world of the black and brown countries, because they've already convinced us to take care of ourselves by not breeding and not having families and, and whatever the hell else is sterilizing us. So uh, they, every day, something, something more cozy is in the, 
is in the news waiting for you. Isn't it? Isn't it something else? Here, listen to this. Here's from the Daily Mail. Now, you know, sometimes so-called artificial intelligence can do some cool stuff. Uh, but many other times, it's like it's like talking to a magic eight ball and you just have to, like, pretend to be impressed. Um, AI reveals what Elvis Presley would look like 46 years after his untimely death. He died at 42. And here he is at 88. The, what the hell is this? Who the hell is that? He's supposed to be 88, Frank. People change. That does not look at all like it could be Elvis Presley. It's just an old guy. Well, who the hell is that? I, I, you know, I, it's so. It's just another one. This AI stuff. I mean, it's it's definitely uh, it's a tool that if used. Um, you can use it cheaply and effectively. You can do a lot of cool things for your personal brands and whatever. But I got to say, there's nothing very um, too intelligent about this stuff so far. I don't know who the hell this is supposed to be. I don't know who else. Looks more like Lyle. I, I can see Lyle Lovett looking more like this than, uh, than Elvis Presley. And even that doesn't look like Lyle Lovett. Just a random old guy with... Jet black dyed hair. All right, here's another one from the smoking gun. So this is probably from Florida. Yep, it is from Clearwater, Florida. I think the smoking gun is only about crazy Florida stories. Sucker busted for lollipop battery at Family Dollar Store. A confrontation yesterday at a Family Dollar Store resulted in the arrest of an armed man. Record show. His weapon? A lollipop. Police say that Dalton Reed, 24, was in line waiting to check out at the convenience store in Clearwater, Florida, when he got into a verbal argument with the store manager, David Jondro. As the dispute escalated, Reed allegedly threw a lollipop at Jondro, striking him in the chest. Luckily, the lollipop lick did not cause bodily harm, according to an arrest affidavit. Reed was arrested for a simple battery. Cops tacked on a possession of drug paraphernalia charge when a post-arrest search reportedly turned up a crack pipe in one of Reed's pockets. Uh, no weapon was seized by Clearwater Police Department officers. Reed remains in the county lockup where bond has been set at $650 on two misdemeanor charges. Reed, pictured at the left has an extensive rap sheet with convictions for grand theft, DUI, narcotics possession, loitering, prowling, and retail theft. Get your life together there, Reed. That lollipop went flying. All right, here is a Fox News brief from New York City. I guess New York City political leaders are demanding that migrant... Uh, Migrants get work authorization handed to them. Somebody has to authorize them to be able to work. Listen to this nonsense. To start about 20 minutes ago, and so far there's about 100 people here. Many of them seem to be from labor unions. Look, this is a very unique type of rally sponsored by New York City government. Mayor Eric Adams calling on New Yorkers and business leaders to come out this morning to pressure the Biden administration to give work permits to thousands of migrants in an expedited way. They can you can you can you 
just I'm I it just still uh it just still shocks me. It just still shocks me that that big dumb face on Eric Adams can sit there and and cast aspersions on anybody and go over there and talk about crisis crisis. Yeah, no, the crisis was that nobody out there is well is uh, is authorized to work. Most people in New York City don't have their work papers and they're just working. All right. The problem is that you have over we are overloading city streets. It's going to be going to uh, suburbs and small communities all over the country once uh, the feeding frenzy in the rat dens that are American cities is not sustainable anymore. Okay. When they're moved into less and less uh, agreeable accommodations. All right, because everybody wants to be put up in hotels. They they like the uh, they they like the room service. They like everything else. And once that all goes away, they're going to go invade smaller cities, just like we're seeing happening along the countryside in the UK. And that's really what this is all about. It's about overloading the United States, pockets of the United States, and then of course allowing this to dissolve everywhere in an unchecked unchecked manner. It's allowing this to happen and have every semblance of local culture, people, everybody being displaced, ways of life changing forever for a cause that is non-existent that nobody should have to shoulder. This is not a cause. There's nobody, there's, there's, this is, these are not refugees. This is a human trafficking operation by this government flown in, bust in over thousands of miles by this government work permits. He should be asking the army to show up to haul them back across the southern border. But it's work permits. But they're crazy. They're crazy. These are people... I, I mean, it's it's just incredible. Now, I had this too. Uh, a little bit on this. More from the NYPD, 115th Precinct. A buddy of mine sent this to me today. If you're driving a scooter recklessly and or unregistered, it will be confiscated. Last weekend, your officers confiscated eight scooters. This year so far, your officers have confiscated 200 scooters. We are here to keep our pedestrians and our motorists safe. So they're confiscating, they're confiscating bikes. Again, the question is, where did the bikes come from? The fact that they're being confiscated in such a high rate makes at least some sense as to why there's no license plates on any of them because they're not licensed. So who is sponsoring this gambit of putting all of these motor vehicles, um, unlicensed motor vehicles, into the hands of foreign nationals in the middle of a major metropolitan area? Where are they coming from? Where are they coming from? So, uh... That's just crazy. This was sent in to me by another friend of mine uh, who has a an in with uh, one of the, the YMCA's around here. We used to work at the YMCA. And the, this, this is just so typical. Listen to this, this memo that was sent out by the YMCA. This year, our Y, and they, they call it, I mean, there's still YMCA.org is out there, but they have long since rebranded YMCA to just the why because they really obviously there's nothing christian about the organization but they want to get as far away from that as possible because all they care about is transgender issues and things like that and 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 um and absolutely no standard whatsoever you definitely can't be affiliated with a religion 
uh, even though that particular religion, Christianity, has been stripped away of all of its standards as well by the same people. Um, let's see here. This year, our Y will be celebrating diversity. This is all they do. Uh, it's like this year we're doing something different. This is all they do. We'll be celebrating diversity in our community by participating in Welcoming Week. Doesn't it sound... This still makes my stomach turn for when I used to get these emails as an employee. Welcoming Week. You knew that was going to be a whole week of useless bullshit that did not enhance anybody's lives but made useless people feel like they were doing something good. Created by YMCA of the USA's national partner, Welcoming America, Welcoming Week is a national celebration that brings together immigrants and U.S.-born residents. So, no mention of citizens anywhere, because we know an immigrant is someone who just crawls across a, a, a nation's border and just says, okay, I'm here now. And then uh, a U.S.-born resident is just somebody who lives here who happened to have been born within the country's borders. Nothing to do with actual citizenship. Okay? Um, but it, And they would never use the word citizen. You see, this is the whole thing about YMCAs and organizations like it. U.S.-born residents at community-based events to promote cross-cultural understanding, which means no understanding at all, kaleidoscopic uh, communities where there is no common threads, nothing, and raise awareness of the benefits of welcoming everyone. There are no benefits of welcoming everyone. I, what, what, are you serious? Well, we're still having that, that imagine the cuisine conversation imagine all the good cuisine conversation everybody everybody's a chef these are people and i know you those there are many of you out there that work in organizations like this these are people who speak for hours without saying anything because they can't say anything they will do all the celebrate they celebrate things that cannot be even articulated or explained you can't be exp you, you can't be expressly anti-white. That's number one. You can't express be over the top anti-white in many of these places. Obviously, on college campuses, you can say it's blacks only, no whites allowed as much as you want. But in this this no, you can't be expressly anti-white. Then they treat uh, black and Hispanic people like they're foreign dignitaries, and it's um, for no reason whatsoever. There is just no good ideas. At these events, these welcome weeks, it's always filled with terrible food, terrible events, and, and it's like you're in suspended animation where nothing happens. Nothing happens because the only reason for existing in a company like this is to just to try to be more diverse and to then celebrate the diversity and hope everybody else sees what you're doing. And then w w what are you supposed to be? You're supposed to be running a gym. You're supposed to be running a fitness center, but you've taken on this ridiculous Agenda 2030 uh, 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 insanity where all you're doing is just, you're just, just so racist. It's just nothing but race. And, oh my gosh, you have no clue. You, you have no clue. If you haven't worked there, you have no clue how many people are working on this nothing week and how many people are going to pat themselves on the back for putting together a week where nothing happens.
but they celebrate as if they're curing cancer in the racquetball court. Oh, gosh, I can't do it anymore. I went to the courthouse yesterday. On, um, I, went, I was in the courthouse yesterday and uh, for that personal matter I had to take care of. And I went to, uh, I asked my lawyer, I said, is the water fountain out there? So, yeah. So I went out to go wet my whistle because we still had some time before the judge came in. And right above the water fountain, I see this. This is in the in the courtroom in, uh, at White Plains. White Plains, you have the right to use the restroom as consistent with your gender identity or gender expression. You do not have to show identification, medical documentation, or any other proof of gender. Any person who assaults, harasses, intimidates, or otherwise interferes with your exercising of your right to do so may be subject to the legal penalties provided in the New York State Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act. Now, if you got assaulted or harassed or intimidated in some way, that's already a crime. But they're talking about anybody who has a reasonable concern about you being in a bathroom that you don't belong in. They, they may be prosecuted. Make sure that you, you turn them in. Make, you th- make sure you turn them in, Victor Victoria. I just... I saw that. I'm like, this is the place where you come to to get justice. And this is the logic that they, this is the logic in the legislation that they have to apply. This is what, this is what judges have to apply. These are the laws that judges in this state have to apply. And that's just scary. That's very scary to go into a courthouse, especially a major one. And, and know that, that these are the rules that everybody is abiding by. It's just incredible. You do not have to show identification, medical documentation, or any proof of gender. Now, of course, you uh, medical documentation for everything else is will be enforced. Will be enforced with a- every tool that they can muster, including socially ostracizing you for everything else. You know what I mean? Anyhow, that's all I got for you right now. Just makes me go nuts. All right, let's talk about murder and serial killers tonight. We got Mike King from Profiling Evil coming on in just a couple of minutes. If you can help me out, just hit the share button. Wherever you're watching this right now, hit the share button because all I did was tweet. I forgot to put it out everywhere else. Do me that favor. Help syndicate the show. Help me get introduced to some of your fam- your families and your friends that I haven't met before. And, um, and yeah, let's have a good time. We will be right back. Don't go anywhere. One ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. That's why we're going back. Does anybody else want to stay? Let's ride!
Who knows what theme song this is? <laughs> I said, why not? All right. A Little Murder She Wrote. Little Murder She Wrote. Want to talk about the harbinger of... Well, you know, we were talking about Mothman last night. You want to talk about the harbinger of bad things to come. It's Angela Lansbury. Watch out when she comes to town. No reason why a writer should be... Should be solving so many murders. She should be the prime suspect after season one. That's the real twist right there. She should have been the prime suspect the entire time. This just defies reason. Um... You know, I saw, I was looking at this, this John Addison uh, main theme for Murder, She Wrote, and the top comment, I love this top comment, then we'll get into introducing our guest tonight, Mike King from Profiling Evil, said this, listen to this, this is from Turner 75 I love comments like this, and you always find this on songs, songs and things that bring people nostalgia, things like that. J.D. Turner says, When I was in sixth grade, I thought the piano and the theme song, the theme music to Murder, She Wrote, was so exciting. It made me want to play the piano myself. My parents didn't know why I was so gung-ho for the piano, and they quickly tired of listening to me try to teach myself on the piano in the dining room. They had bought it from the flea market because it was a beautiful piece of furniture, not because it was a great instrument. No one in my family actually played. They arranged lessons for me anyway, thinking it was going to be a passing fad. I was 12 years old. Now, 32 years later, I make my living as a professional pianist, uh, teaching, accompanying singers, and composing. I was recently asked by by a friend, a playwright, to compose incidental music for a mystery he had written for a local theater. It brought me back to this, the Murder, She Wrote theme, which I had not heard in years. But those little classical piano licks at the beginning and the end are the reason why I do what I love today. Thank you, John Addison. I, I mean, it's the comment sections are really where the magic is made on so many places on the internet. It's also where you can have your day ruined, too, and the most uh, in, in, inane, stupid people are, too. But uh, I love these stories. And uh, depending on what kind of videos you're hanging out on, you usually get more of these than, than anything else. All right. Now that I've talked your ear off, let's go and talk about our wonderful guest this evening. Mr. Mike King. He is the creator and host, creator and host of Profiling Evil on YouTube and podcast. He also has the podcast Mapping Evil with Mike King in Southeast Asia. Uh, Today, he appears regularly on Court TV, The Dr. Phil Show, News Nation, and other mainstream news and entertainment programs. He served a five-year term on the board of directors of the Cold Case Foundation before stepping down in 2021. Mike has worked with law enforcement around the world on real-time crime, intelligence, and fusion and emergency communications. His 28 years of law enforcement includes chief of staff to the Weber County attorney and a police officer in Ogden, Uh, Utah, but overall has been assisting with law enforcement operations for over four decades now. He joins us tonight. I've been looking forward to this for many weeks. Mike King, welcome to the show. Hey, what a pleasure to be with you, Frank. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, the pleasure is all ours. I can't wait to jump into this. So, you know, pretty soon you'll be going on a half a century's work uh, doing this detective work, all all kinds of things. Do you still remember the first case that you, uh, you took on? 
You know, I do. I, I, you, of course, there were cases as a patrol officer where you end up responding to a burglary or a missing child. And then as you kind of evolve into detectives, you get additional kinds of cases. But I, I, I'll never forget, my very first case was a, a, a little boy who walked away from a home and uh, we spent all night looking for him and Frank and thankfully found the kid. And uh, it's the stories like that that really stick with you. But on that very same night, a kid that went to high school with us uh, was serving as a jailer in the community where I live. And uh, he was murdered on his way home from work. And I ended up being the first officer on the scene at uh, his homicide. So those kind of things stick with you. You never lose them. And you always think about them and wonder what their lives might have been like. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, and and you know, as time passes by, there's the con- the backdrop for what's going on around us, uh, really makes you wonder. Um, obviously, there's individual tragedies. Then you start wondering how much of it is connected, um, it, whether it be a, a a ripple through culture or something else that is just making things go sideways. And then now that's you as a patrol officer. What, what about what about like getting actually into? Did you go into detective work at that point? Did you get, uh, you know, what was that transition like coming off the beat and then actually having a, a case assigned to you to look into? Well, you know, I was lucky. I, I served as a SWAT officer for a number of years, and that's a great testosterone time in a person's life because you're you're blowing up things, you're kicking doors in, you're you're shooting all the time, and uh, and of course you're working with a team of other SWAT officers that you have nothing but trust and utmost respect for. But then as I started moving into investigations, I actually, as I went to to work for the county attorney, I uh, actually took up a uh, investigative squad and we were buying stolen cars and running sting operations. And so we were having wow. the time of our life. I mean, that, that was real police work. To, to be out and, and be in the trenches and uh, digging things up. And that kind of led me into this crazy case of cults and child sexual abuse and adult sexual abuse that I never planned on doing, but it kind of evolved and, and became a hallmark of my career. Uh, that is, and that became the subject matter for your book, Deceived. Now you were responsible. This is all sub uh, uh, focused around your breaking up a major polygamous cult in Utah called the Zion Society. You published that book about it. Um, can you give us the highlights of that case, starting with how you caught the scent of the whole plot itself? How, who came forward? How did how did this all starting to unfurl? You know, Frank, that was crazy. And, and like I say, I was running this undercover sting task force. And I walked into the county attorney's office one day. I was probably about 12 years into my career by this point. So I had seen a few things and I'd been in a lot of different kinds of circumstances. And the receptionist said, hey, can you talk to this woman sitting over in the corner? She's been waiting for a couple of hours to meet with an investigator and there's nobody available. So I was the last rung on the ladder, I believe. And I walked over and it's this beautiful 21 year old girl with jet black hair and I mean she was she was dressed up to the tees. I walked over to introduce myself and she stood up real confidently and she said, "Hi, my name is Aaron Anderson and I've been involved in a cult that's sexually abusing children. Do you have a minute to talk to me?" Jeez. And uh like you might imagine, I mean it was I tried to act like I I hear this kind of thing all the time, but I was absolutely blown away. That led me into un- understanding 
what was going on and launched an investigation that took thousands of hours, it ultimately resulted in us taking 70 police officers and raiding the compound, hitting 14 homes at once to try to collect evidence, uh, to take people into custody, to take children into protective custody. Because this was a group of about 120 adults that were sexually abusing 32 children. And uh, they were stockpiling weapons and ammunition and they had this doomsday mentality. So it was an incredibly pivotal moment in my career. Um, just, I, I want to get into so much of that, especially the, the cult. Lead. I want to talk about the cult formation from top down. But as far as what when you're when you're learning about the who, what, where, why, when, what's the why? Uh, you see the doomsday mentality. You have the ammunition. You have this secluded compound. Obviously, there is a religious r- ritual uh, aspect to all this. But where does the abuse of children? Um, where's the value in that? Is are, are, is it all a very, is it for spiritual, spirit-conjuring reasons? Or is it, I mean, what? Did, did you find out motive? How much? Yeah, I, I, I think that the thing that we had to do initially was, number one, figure out if this woman was crazy or not, if she was truly telling the truth, because she was actually implementing her, uh, implicating herself in this crime spree, Frank. She said, I'd been in this cult and I had been involved in the abuse of children. She was prepared to take whatever would happen to her, including going to prison to clear her conscience and save these kids. So as we started digging into it, the idea is that you don't wanna take just one form of evidence or one person's testimony. So you start digging around the periphery and you start trying to figure out, is there physical evidence, forensic evidence, maybe eyewitness testimony, and can these things corroborate each other and really help you bring a case together? But as you're doing this, you're trying to understand the philosophy of the group, what the ideology is. And, you know, there are lots of cults out there. Somebody that loves the the, uh, Dodgers uh, could be accused of being a cultish follower of the Dodgers. So what we really focus on when we look at these cults is a destructive cult, something that's taking away the rights of others, someone that's really impacting the lives of others. And as we looked into this cult, we started recognizing that they were people with like mindsets. They they wanted a polygamous type lifestyle. They wanted to have multiple wives and uh, they wanted to be able to carry on outside of the laws of what law would say was a traditional marriage at the time. They had uh, people that were doomsdayers that believed the end of the world was coming and that they needed to stockpile weapons and be prepared for this Armageddon that might come. And you always seem to have these extremists, these uh, religious zealots who are elitists and think that they have all of the light and knowledge that uh, is needed and nobody else seems to have it. And then of course you got the followers, the people that are seeking a support system or the people who just frankly uh, need direction in all things. And there are people out there 
They can't even make a decision on their own. They want somebody just to tell them what to do rather than be responsible for the choices they make. Uh, and I, I can see that, you know, somebody wants to have more than one wife. Somebody wants to or somebody thinks that there's a comet coming that's going to whisk us all away and we need to get our, uh, you know, get our stuff in order and put on our sneakers and put the roll of quarters in our pockets and all that stuff. But, you know, but... Uh, it, it, where where does the utility in destroying the lives, the innocence of children come in? Uh, that's just, I mean, obviously the first thing I go to is, you know, say if it's satanic ritual abuse, I mean, there is, there is very um, ceremonial, there's a lot of ceremonial value in, in destroying um, uh, children like that. But that just seems like the last thing that you would want to do if you thought that you were actually about to uh, hitch a ride on a comet to heaven is to destroy the life of a child beforehand. Yeah, it's interesting. And as we looked at this particular cult leader, and his name was Arvin, what we started to realize as we were looking into his background was that he actually wasn't this uh, self-proclaimed prophet that he was putting himself out to be. In reality, he was a predator and a, and a pedophile, mm. and that he was building a religion to justify what he already knew was wrong. And it started out with uh, basic lusts and, and led toward this idea of polygamy in his case. And some people may argue that polygamy is a completely laudable thing, and I don't wanna even get into that battle other than to say, if people are being uh, required, forced, compelled to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do, uh, that steps over the line from deviant kinds of behaviors into criminal behaviors. And this guy started saying, hey, I want more wives. Well, he, as his church grew, he got more wives. He grew to the point that he had 28 wives himself. And there were several other men in the cult who had uh, polygamist families that they were starting. But then his ideology started to get a little wackier as his perversions got uglier. <clears throat> and he said, that he received revelation from his God. And you, I hope you noticed I said his God, because mm -hmm. I don't believe it's the same God that many of us believe in. But his God was telling him that the women should now have sexual relationships with each other because he was now 61 years old. And I don't know if he was unable to take care of the needs that some had, or if it was just his perversion getting out of control. But then, this thing continues to canker, and he comes up with new revelation that says his God believes that the children should be involved. And uh, he was sexually assaulting children as young as two years old uh, at the time of his arrest. You know, we all, all uh, there's a lot of us. I know that you are very, very, um, when, when it comes to your work, you're very by the book. You don't engage in speculation, conspiracy theory, but I love conspiracy theory and uh you know and but and 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 i also also just through observation theorize a lot that um that kind of the way that you're describing this grooming of people into a situation where a um a, a thought of someone who is a pedophile that wants to normalize deviant behavior with a smaller group so that you can eventually get to the point where you can live the way you want to live 
out in the open and have nobody say anything about it. I believe that kind of thing happens on a national and international level. And uh, and I, I think that the, the cultural degradation that we're witnessing all the time is, uh, is we're on a slippery slope towards something like that. But, you know, what you're talking about right now, um, it reminds me a lot about the testimony of people who struggled to get away from the Church of Scientology, um, as well as a lot of what we know about the People's Temple with Jim Jones and how he upped the ante all the time, where uh, there are just little people who get roped in, blackmailed, extorted, and the abuse comes in many different forms. But can you talk about the formation of a cult from the top down? So from the standpoint of the cult leader, how does one create a foothold with people usually? Is it usually a preacher who breaks away from a, a legitimate congregation and then takes a small foundation with them? Is it street evangelizing? Is it mail marketing? How did this start? How did he find his first three disciples? Well, so for this guy, what a, what a great question, because when we went back and looked at his processes, we came up with a couple of recruiting and retention kind of strategies that I have now tested against other cults throughout the last uh, 35 years, where first and foremost, the thing is, to this, they call it search, this, this process of getting out. And for most, it starts with family members, those that they can control, like a father who has control over children and instills in them a certain ideology or belief system. Then it kind of spreads into friends and associates, and those become the foundational part. And if you if you offer people something that they can't get otherwise, especially people who have some rather mundane life that they're living, or they're at a crisis point at that point where maybe they uh, feel like they don't have any support system somewhere and all of a sudden someone cares, then they can bring those people in. And you know, when I started all this, I used to think people are idiots that join cults. It's absolutely not the truth, Frank. Cults are filled with educated people, people who have money, people who are poor, but most often it's gonna be somebody that can bring something to the cult whether it's finances or property or a capability that's gonna help them grow. And in Arvin case and in the Zion Society case, once he got that core group of members, then he had them go out and start their recruiting process. And what they did is they figured out the perfect victim to bring into the cult. Arvin wanted them to go out because his preference was having these harems of women and seek out women who were in vulnerable situations. Mm. And they would then start inviting them to come and go to a movie night or something, or he'd offer assistance. He'd find a, a mom who had just gone through a divorce and was scared to death as she faced trying to figure out where she was gonna live and how she was gonna get a job and pay for her kids and keep them in a safe environment. And he'd say, hey, we got all that for you. You can just come and we're gonna take care of you because we've been through this before we know what you're going through and we want to help and people get sucked in because they are so incredibly vulnerable and it makes me always think of a quote that was made by margaret singer she, dr singer was this amazing um individual who studied cults all her career and she said you know we believe that people can be led to buy almost anything. And you think about that in the yeah. advertising world. Oh yeah. And she said, but in addition to buying almost anything, people can be led to believe 
almost anything. And then she taught this really important principle that it cults know that if you knew what you were in for in the beginning, what you were in for and why you'd never join. It's as simple as that. So it's all about that search and guys that you put in. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, th- that perfectly answers the next question I had because it's one thing to, to, to wonder about how does leadership put together the, the, the structure of what will be their church or whatever the hell they're trying to put together, but you know, do, or do, how do you find people to join cults to do, you know, are, are, is it usually people with diabolical intentions from the beginning or is it that their willingness to commit, commit evil evolves over time through certain types of, I mean, perfect example is the girl who implicated herself to be able to break the story. I mean, obviously that is somebody who never intended to hurt children, but however many months or years she's in she realized what her life had become and now if, if there's any chance of making amends uh for the rest of it there's there's got to be a uh i mean the piper's got to get paid so it's just uh crazy to think that it could it could sneak up on you but i guess it has snuck up on people before oh absolutely and you know it makes me think of the one of the things that i learned as i was uh, running this statewide task force on ritual crime for the attorney general by the way i was chief of staff in the attorney general's office um not at the county level although i I guess i could be kind of called that too there but uh one thing that i figured out was especially in dealing with polygamist organizations or other closed societies is you really got two buckets you have these generational groups especially when you're dealing with polygamy uh where these children are raised with an ideology and a belief system they never had anything different than what they're living and to infiltrate and to extract and to change and to deprogram somebody who is generationally involved in cult behavior is next to impossible versus groups like the zion society that were convert based they they came into it but they still had in the back recesses of their mind a memory of a support system or right and wrong or this isn't right and uh and that made a huge difference in this particular case because we watched as these people went through this process of recruitment that they would then start to separate them from everything that was of some form of support they would tell them you can have no more relationship with your family they would Uh, in this group and in many cults, strip them of all their identity, sometimes even changing their names, like in Heaven's Gate or or some of the other cults that you've mentioned, they would strip them of anything that provides identity, including things like wedding rings or or, uh, personal possessions, photographs. And as they did that, they could start this grooming process where they would subtly introduce concepts that had a ring of truth but then would start to uh, bring in these weird things. And over time, as people push back and say, hey, I'm not comfortable with that, they would then come in with such emotional battering and disengagement that the people would fall back in line in order to have that support system that they'd grown to, to rely upon. And that's how a guy goes from I'd never do that to thinking, well, maybe it's not that bad if God wants me to do it. 
maybe I can. And the best analogy I can think of is you don't boil a, a frog by throwing him in boiling water. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that, that one gets around a lot these days. Um, so when we talk about, the, let's talk about societal conditions. Um, what may be contributing to this to violent this type of violence? I mean, we, we talk about serial killers, uh, ritualistic murder. Um, are there any hard markers for you that you see in society that would that would uh, that would make this become more and more prevalent? And, and do you believe that it is more prevalent in in society today than when uh, you know maybe back in the the uh, the, the late seventies or so? You know, I don't know if I believe that it's a bigger problem today. I believe that some contributing factors are bigger today. We watched this <clears throat> happen as the internet started to become a big thing through the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. And we saw the influence that pornography had on the fantasy that predators would start to create in their mind. And there's, you know, it's a really weird thing when you think about uh, this you, you, for any of your listeners out there that are like Bible readers, the the Bible says that the world had to be created spiritually first and then physically created. Crime's exactly the same way. Before someone acts out and does something, it has to be created in the mind, and in the mind they work through justifying whether it's something they can pull off and be successful at or not. And then they continue to fantasize about that. And the thing about fantasy is um, fantasy will always be cooler than reality. And so when these people finally act out and try something, it never works out like they want. A follower is upset and says, this doesn't feel right. Or a child that's being sexually assaulted is saying, this isn't right. And the predator has to go back and in their fantasies, fix whatever was going wrong and try it again. And so when you talk about serial killers or serial predators, it's that process, I think, that causes them and fuels them to continue to repeat the behaviors. But as far as are we seeing more today, Frank, my personal opinion is we're just better at advertising and telling the world about everything that's happening around us. Yeah, I, 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 um, I mean, I, I always wondered about that whether or not. Obviously, I, I think I'm, I'm. You have a lot more, um, a lot more experience in the field, but I, as a cultural analysis and commentator, I, I think that we are probably producing far more crazy than we ever have before. But on the other hand, uh, comparing our, our population growth here in the in the country. Oh, since you know, say the emergence of uh, of Son of Sam or any other uh, big uh, headline serial killers from decades ago, you can always just say, "Hey, more population is going to produce more crazy," and perhaps it's all relative in some way. But I, th I definitely think that there's there's some kind of cultural degradation that's that's uh, enhancing and accelerating this to some degree. Um, but uh, you know wh wh where where we go from that? I mean, we we talk about decline in religious faith. Uh, a lot of pharmaceuticals are we consume a lot of pharmaceuticals. A lot of them psychotropic, um, broken homes. Do you ever take a take into consideration those 
those points on a person, especially once somebody's on your radar. Um, I know for a time, blaming rock music and video games was a very prominent thing. Uh, you already brought up pornography. So are, are these all data points that usually pop up in the profiling? Yeah, and you know, um, I mean, I, to, to avoid getting into like uh, social arguments and upsetting people about whether uh, a two-parent home is better than a one-parent home, I mean, I agree with all the arguments. If a two-parent home has one parent that's really caustic, I, I don't know that I agree that that's better. But, but mm -hmm. what I found over the course of my career is in most cases, if there was a predator that was involved in serious crime, there usually was some marker in their past that led up to that, perhaps abuse themselves or sustained criminal activity, or frankly, just a psycho, um, uh, psychoanalytical problem that they have, like the inability to be apathetic or understanding or or you know all of those things or empathetic not apathetic empathetic um and and those are the things that seem to be consistent among predators and you know one thing that i really think you struck a, a an important point on is that um, we're seeing now a real withdrawal from faith systems and, and i don't care what the faith system is every faith system i know of across uh all of Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, uh, Islam, they all teach that there's a higher power and there's a greater good and it's about others. And And as we've watched this change that's happened, especially with, uh, I think, a rapid acceleration through COVID where people are leaving religion, there's not a reminder or a check and balance in many psyches as they make decisions. And that's personal feeling but one that I've seen over the course of my career that suggest is suggestive of people who commit crime. They become people with little or no faith. And yet here we are talking about a religious zealot who proclaimed that everything was about God. So I, I don't know how to even answer a question like that, I guess. I, I, it's, it's, hey, it's as complex as, as anything else in this world. <laughs> anything that people say is simple is usually not the case. But So has the process of profiling a killer or profiling any anybody in particular changed much in the last 20 years? Is it all technological? Is it just, you know, systems-based, more resources? Um, what, do you, what, what do you feel on that? You know, I, I was fortunate to be trained by, I think, the greatest profilers in history. And uh, one of the things that I remember being taught in the very beginning is that profiling is really an art and science mixture. And that if you think about most criminal investigations, criminal investigations look at just some basic forms of evidence in order to prove whether something happened or not. It might be a confession from a suspect or an admission. It might be an eyewitness who saw something. And in most cases, eyewitnesses are like some of the least reliable things out there. But then you got fingerprints and DNA and physical evidence and then now today we've got this incredible forensic evidence by being able to look at other kinds of things like uh, technology and vehicles or cell phones or, or, or watches that can help us to put cases together. But the thing that a profiler does, Frank, that is so cool in my opinion, is a profiler kind of bundles all of that up 
and sits it on the shelf for a short time and looks at the case from a purely behavioral perspective. Mm. And um, I remember being taught, and, and frankly, everything I say is regurgitated from prose that I learned it from, and then I've now made it intrinsic in, in who I am and the way I look at things, but to, to vicariously roll in the dirt where the predator was, to sit in the corner of a home where a homicide occurred and look at the blood spatter going up the side of a wall and trying to understand what would have created that kind of reaction, what the door lock looks like, what the words were that the predator said to the victim, and equally important, what the predator made the victim say to them as they committed these crimes. All of those things teach us behavior. And as we look at these big pools of possible suspects in crimes, as we take that other form of evidence, behavior, it helps us to kind of like an old gold panner, get through all the noise and get down to nuggets that really can help us determine who might most likely be responsible for something. Well, that's one hell of a task right there to try to con- <laughs> to try to consider what kind of verbal exchanges were, uh, were were going on in the middle of an altercation or a murder, um, especially when there's no evidence of, there's nothing. There's there, there might be blood left behind. Obviously, there was a body in many cases. But, yeah. you know, it, it, it's just, you know, I guess a lot of that would just have to be speculation as well about just subject well, matter. Well, and, and, you know, not necessarily because you think about it, there is verbal behavior, uh, us talking, and if we were sitting in the same room together and I scrunched my face up and I was really angry, and you can see this now as we're, we're having this conversation, there's nonverbal behavior. So we can start to theorize based on everything in totality, not something by itself. And, you know, when you kind of re-brought up the idea of what the predator might have had the victim say to them in the course of a maybe a sexual assault or something, it all goes back to the fantasy that's driving the the crime. And when you hear things and learn things that most police officers don't even think to ask about, a profiler is going to think to say, but what was motivating this offender? Why did he select this victim? And instead of going into a crime scene and saying, who done it, what we really should be doing in these kinds of cases is say, who are these victims or victim and why did they become a victim? What was it that brought the predator and the prey together? Hmm. Uh, you know, that's that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing to consider. I mean, it's a, it's a deep one, too. And origin stories are everything. I I also think, you know, you brought up DNA, and I was thinking about consumer-grade technology, how DNA, from what I've, I, when I've talked to other law enforcement uh, people in law enforcement and everything I've read over the years and things that we've watched, it's obvious how fingerprinting, um, those databases that could then be nationalized, uh, DNA, that really changed detective work forever. It exonerated a lot of people that were put on death row wrongly. I mean, th- those are huge things that revolutionized detective work. And then I think about like, like this morning, my wife was telling me, she showed me a post from a local, um, a local page somewhere that showed how some supermarkets around us are implementing palm scans 
as a part of their cashless self-checkout initiatives. Now, I, I will never scan mm. my hand or an eye to make a purchase in my life, but it got me thinking about how advanced even consumer-grade technology is getting. And uh, so, you know, over the last 20 years or so, has any surprising tools came in to become, you know, a really, really big boon for investigators like you? For example, how exa how uh, effective is, this was asked by somebody else in the audience, how effective is DNA ancestry sites like 23andMe been with solving some cold cases? Has that, has that been happening? What kind of tools are available to you now that you didn't have 20 years ago? Yeah, well, that's, that's a great place to jump in. I, I remember... Uh, a uh, down in Southern California, a woman who was murdered on Valentine's Day, and and I spent some time with the investigator, and it was genealogical DNA that actually brought that thing full circle after many many years of being cold. In in California, we saw um, an offender brought to justice, a serial killer, because of genealogy DNA. Every single day we're seeing them. My, my buddies over at Othram, uh, a place that does nothing but look at DNA and try to put it together with cold cases, uh, is bringing closure to families every single day. And so, I mean, what a what a cool time to be an investigator. What a bad time to have family blood and people who are interested in genealogy because that database is growing and growing and there are lots of efforts to try to stop that from being an investigative tool. But uh, I think most people in the world would gladly have that DNA help them solve finding a missing child that disappeared 20 years ago or something else. Oh, uh, you know, that's a great question. Uh, a great question comes up right there is, and now that all of these tools are around, I mean, anybody can run searches throughout these DNA, these DNA uh, networks, and they're becoming a lot more publicly accessible. What about the, you know, I wouldn't call it vigilantism because you're not going out there to exact any uh, revenge, but what about people who uh, are maybe drawn to more independent investigations? Do you know more and more people who are just using what's available? Uh, I, the internet sleuths all over the world have incredibly solved things that have seemed to be unsolvable by you know traditional law enforcement. Uh, what do you think about people just getting involved? They, they, they want to be involved, they have good intentions, and they're using all of their skills to, uh, to try to bring some you know, uh, discerning light on something that has been a mystery for a while. You know, that, that's been a, a moral question for me as I've done Profiling Evil, because I will have people reach out to me that things that would be so cool to be able to put up and get clicks out of or get new subscribers out of, and yet my conscience and my professional background say, uh-uh, this is something that needs to go directly to police. And so I guess that's where I draw the line. I absolutely love the fact that there's a true crime community out there that might have a different way of looking at things or a different philosophy about something. But if they truly uncover something that could solve a murder or bring a missing child home, it has no place on a YouTube channel. It first needs to go to law enforcement. And I'll tell you what, I've taken a lot of hits because of that, because people wanna have a sensational program and, a, and clicks and say, 
I changed the world by solving this crime, but it's not their place. It needs to go to the people with authority to investigate that case. Uh, a little bit more controversial of a question for you. What if people feel like, you know, there's a, there's a what do they say, a, a justice delayed is justice denied. Uh, maybe somebody is on a, a really, really hot trail and they really have something going for them. And the people they're bringing it to, sometimes, sometimes Mike, we're dealing with just pride. Uh, I know I, I, I've, I've talked to cops who have, have said to me straight out that sometimes when they feel that just everyday people have done some kind of high quality work that seems to make them look bad they may just not do it because huh yeah who the hell do you think you are what if you're really onto something and those and you're going to the authorities and you're just not getting any attention that you know especially if it's time sensitive you still uh what does your heart of heart tell you yeah, I'm I'm st I'm still there, Frank, for for a couple of reasons. I've seen too many times when the public has socialized something that the courts prevented from coming into a trial because it's already been vetted, it's already been socialized, it's already been placed in front of the jury of public uh, sentiment, and uh, and so yeah, you might get it done a little faster. But if it's not done in the right way, it has no value anyway. You might feel better. You might have brought it to the, to the forefront. You might have told the world that this person did something bad. But if it's bad and they should be held accountable for it, it needs to be done in the right order. And you know what? If you got cops that are doing that, and I know there are examples where that has happened, then you got to go to different angles. You got to go to the sheriff or to the state police or to the attorney general or the US attorney general or the feds, but you gotta try to do it the right way first. And, and again, I mean, I go back to the core motivation. If you releasing something is because you're gonna be able to say on your YouTube channel, hey, breaking news, I found this. I don't know if it's really the right thing to do. Hmm. Uh, all good points. All good points. These are things that people wrestle with all the time because we're just in a, a time where nobody knows how far they should move the ball themselves and how much they trust they should have in the institutions out there. But really great points and, there. And, you know, how would you feel, Frank, if, if your loved one had been murdered and you want nothing more than this person found that did this and convicted and you want them to spend the rest of their life behind bars and some galump comes along and shares something that breaks the case wide open but it's never admitted into court because of of the way it was handled mm. i mean has it really helped anyone I can see that. I mean, the one thing that we have learned over the last few years alone is how easy it is to have really high-value evidence just get thrown away because of the way it, it's been handled. Um, uh, yeah, for sure. Exactly. By cops as well, by mm -hmm. the way. I mean, you know, they, they screw up and and release it or they don't tell anyone about it right away or they, they're holding it close to the cuff and they haven't cataloged it correctly i mean this goes both ways and i i love the policing profession but it would be crazy to say we don't have mistakes and it's not an evolving learning business um you brought something up before you're talking about cold cases made me just wonder how old is too old of a cold case <laughs> you, you know well <laughs> Thank you for asking that, because I always like to uh, pat myself on the on the back. Uh, uh, 
FBI profiler and I were hired by the Discovery Channel to look into the death of King Tut. Oh, that's old. That's a cold, cold case. <laughs> you're, you're talking 1300 BC, so what, 3200 years ago. And uh, we spent several months in, uh, actually several years, going back and forth to Egypt and working with the world's premier Egyptologists and forensic examiners. And we were finally actually granted the ability to go in and spend time with Tut in his tomb. And I, I, I just remember thinking, what is this old sour cop doing sitting in King Tut's tomb? But uh, we, we came up with what we believed was a murder case and uh, we presented it to a group of Egyptologists at, uh, uh, in, in Washington, D.C. And uh, it became an Emmy award-winning film with Discovery Channel and we had a blast. And so I always kind of laugh because I say, well, if you can solve a, a murder case at 3,000 years old, we ought to be able to solve the one that happened 20 years ago. Uh, you'd think so. You'd think so. But that's just crazy. So you, really, you just you, you guys, uh, a, a very, very small audience of people, just you, a partner, and King Tut's body, just right, that's it. A absolutely incredible. In fact, on, on one particular moment in that investigation, it, this was uh, just shortly after the collapse of the towers at 9-11. It was in the middle of Ramadan, and we were in uh, Amarna, Egypt, which is uh, in the middle of nowhere. It's a place where King Tut's dad, a guy named Akhenaten, had moved his family and was trying to keep from getting murdered because he changed the belief system from the Amun priesthood to a monotheistic kind of a belief system. And we uh, went into a tomb that hadn't been opened in 40 years. It was discovered and immediately closed up. But as we were climbing through the tomb, there were bones, there were artifacts, and we walked into a room. And if you remember the Indiana Jones film where that big ball rolls through the oh yeah through the building, we walked into a room and there was a big cement ball up on a block, and it really freaked me out because I started thinking of all the mummy movies. But what we learned was that they actually started in those rooms chipping away and the easiest thing to do would be to chip the walls down into a ball and then push the ball out of the temple so it made perfect sense now all of a sudden why the ball was in the temple of doom oh gotcha gotcha because me yeah i that would my, my first thought would be do not touch anything Exactly. Don't touch Wait anything. for the darts <laughs> and those beetles that are going to crawl in your skin. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Blow, blow on everything. You know, you want to make sure there's no strings attached. Oh, boy. Well, that's, yeah, uh, and we, it's, that's when you let the guide go into the room first, too, by the way. Yes. You say, oh, no, please, after you. After you. I'm just going to stand back here. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that is that is one heck of an adventure. Uh, you know, so that the, they're cold cases. Then let's talk about... Uh, I know that you cover a lot of open cases, ones that are still being, you know, they're they're developing right now on your channel. A lot of people come to do um, deep dives on on uh, on publicly available information. Let's let's start with one that is a little bit closer to home over here in New York. That's the Long Island ser serial killer. This Rex Hewerman. Uh, any updates on this case? Last I heard. I mean, we were talking about the, the, the police the police officer out there who was crooked, had a lot of issues, but he was linked, this Rex guy was linked to four victims, but those four, that's four of 11, if I, I believe, the 11 that was discovered years ago. So 
I've always wondered, is this, um, is this all the work of one man or is it a fraternity of killers that just found a common dumping spot? What, what do you think so far? Are we getting any closer to understanding that? You know, I've actually been following the Long Island serial killer case for about a decade. I did some uh, work with uh, and, and some uh, shows with A&E on the Long Island serial killer where we were exploring some of the characteristics there. And the thing that I find interesting <clears throat> is I'm one of those people that don't believe, for instance, Shannon Gilbert, the woman who was found that really sprung in to this investigation, the discovery of the four women at Gilgo Beach. I don't believe that Shannon Gilbert was the victim of a serial killer. Some people really disagree with me, but behaviorally, it just doesn't fit. The thing that's interesting about those bodies that are discovered out on Gilgo and, and Long Island is that uh, that group of three and possibly four that Hearman will, will uh, probably face in court all had very similar kinds of things about the way the body bodies were disposed, the locations, the methodology, the DNA, <laughs> those things are pretty hard to overcome. But when you start thinking about those other bodies, I mean, you have the Asian male who, it could have been uh, that he, uh, Hearman, if he is responsible for this, thought he was picking up a woman, discovered it was a man, flew into a rage, and murdered this young man, or it could be completely uh, something different. And these outliers, you got to think about. There were bodies that were cut up and mutilated, cut into pieces and deposited in different locations. And they were uh, many, many years apart. So you start thinking about if it is the same predator, then has the predator evolved? Have they gone through a process, maybe in those early days when body parts were being cut up and disposed in multiple locations, it was a predator who was a little more agile, a little more wary and trying to move evidence around to make it uh, more possible that they'd get away with it. And then they got away with it for 10 years and thought, I don't have to work that hard. And so they just start putting them in a burlap bag and dumping them. So you got to start thinking about those kinds of things. And this is where this case will become more relevant as we learn what was recovered in Hearman's home in the search, if they find DNA from those other victims. We know that there's forensic DNA to the three and possibly four. We know that there are other kinds of evidence to, to put those in the same place like eyewitness and others. So, so you gotta kinda take them into account that way. But our first knee jerk reaction is, he's a serial killer. He's gotta be responsible for all of them. We may not be. Right. Right, and that's the first thing I thought about. Um, you know, was this a a fraternity of killers, or is could it just have become a a common dumping ground, or something that uh, you know people who are in in the business of you know disposing of human life like this, they just look for areas that are this marshy, secluded. It's just you know you want to talk about data points. Might just be some a place that is often sought out for people like this i don't know but you know i, I also you're absolutely right and you think about the displacement that occurs from um predation animals that might pick up a a part of a body and carry it somewhere else to consume it and that transfers it and yet we come up with these wild ideas that oh no the predators purposely doing these kinds of things or is tidal influence bringing in 
body parts that otherwise wouldn't. And is that a collector because tide happens to push in that direction? So you got to take all these things into consideration that frankly, with Long Island, I don't know enough about. I've studied the tidal waters and others trying to see if I could come up with some ideas there. But those are the kinds of things that at least a good investigator, in my opinion, is constantly evaluating. And uh, and it's just too easy to to just say, oh yeah, it's the same guy. Yeah, I I know. Um, well, let's move on to another one. Almost like rapid fire this because we're we're running out of time. Um, the the four the four students who were killed in Idaho, the Idaho four that that they're called in the media. I I haven't done a lick of this on the show, but I would love to see uh, a crash course time from you. Where is that at right now? Because last I, I did hear is that the defense was stalling and there was a lot of there's a lot of just, I don't know, slow moving aspects of of that trial with the, the suspect's name and, and, and what happened. So, yeah, the, the suspect in that is uh, Brian Koberger, and uh, he actually was a, a northeasterner, uh, but he was going to school. 11 miles west of where the college students were killed. He was a criminal justice uh, graduate student. Um, so that is always kind of an interesting thing to kind of think through. Um, but the, the crux of the of the entire case is that these four students were brutally murdered, that uh, a witness saw the predator as he was leaving the home. She lived and it's unknown whether the predator saw her and was just tired. Because I'll tell you what, uh, Frank, I've I've seen a video, especially in the prison system, of people stabbing people to death. And it's messy, hard work. Killing someone is not an easy thing. And to kill four people, uh, that predator had to have been exhausted by the time they left. And obviously made mistakes like leaving um, leaving the sheath to his knife behind and other evidence that will come out uh, in the course of this case. He has forensic evidence that's against him right now. And his argument simply is, I wasn't there. I was, I drove by the, drove past there, but I was just out for a drive. And I happened to turn my phone off while I was out for a drive so that it couldn't be tracked. And uh, my DNA was discovered in the home, but I had nothing to do with it. So this one's going to really boil down to getting through all of this noise that the defense is creating, getting into trial and the prosecution putting on the case to say why this kid was there and and uh, if he is responsible, holding him accountable. But a horrendous case. The questions come up, did he intend on killing all four? Uh, my personal opinion is that he had a preferential target in there and that everyone else was collateral damage mm -hmm. that he had to just clean up. Oh, well, I'm I'm almost glad that I didn't uh, I didn't follow that case. Now, now that I got the the, the crash course, I mean, uh, th this must weigh weigh on you after a while. I, I know it weighs on people. They need to take breaks. People always have to take tolerance breaks for all this stuff. But someone in your your situation. Man, this must, uh, you have to have a certain type of constitution to keep going, especially for 40 years. Let me ask you this. Um, this one came in from a, an audience member who lives near Austin, 
Texas. Says, does Mike know anything about the Rainy Street killer? Young men have been turning up dead in Lady Bird Lake just off of Rainy Street for over a decade now, and I believe about 12 have turned up just in the last year, leading to an arrest that was made in February, I think. It's all been very hush-hush. Anything about that, Mike? Yeah, well, I know that police department well. I've actually been in that building many, many times, and I helped them with some of their crime analysis uh, solutions and some of the mapping that they do there. And the thing that I find interesting in that case, number one, who who wouldn't be concerned if you got dead bodies showing up? I think five dead bodies that have showed up in that stretch of river. So the question that I start going to is, there, there are only two outliers that I know of. One victim they've released uh, that I'm aware of, if I remember right, had uh, blunt force trauma to the face and maybe another part of his body potentially had been in a fist fight or something uh, near the bar area uh, along the river. And uh, police are saying that he drowned. Now, he could have been beat up and thrown in the river, and that's a murder even though he drowned. So I don't want to discount that. But then they released the autopsy on the latest victim, if I remember right. And in that autopsy, they determined that he clearly did drown. He still had his wallet with him. He had his watch on. Uh, he he was dressed in his clothing, and uh, and that he was uh, um, probably drinking and fell in the river and drowned. I don't know what the others were like. So that's really what becomes important. Again, like I said early on in the show, the victimology. Who's the victim, and why did they become a victim? And I think that as this case unfolds, we'll see whether they had their uh, personal items stolen from them, or if they recovered them in the river with their items with them, if there was any nexus that tied them back to something like buying narcotics from certain people. Those are the kinds of things that will bring this together to help us understand if it's a serial predator. I think they've clearly identified that it's not the serial predator, that the, the Latino man that they were looking at for other things in the area. So um, again, I always go back to this idea. Let's, before we jump to a, a uh, idea like serial killer, let's see if we can explain some of the things and what brought those people together in space and time. And, and if it's okay, I'd like to just talk a little bit about risk if I could. Oh yeah, by, by all means. Um, one of the things that I really try to spend a lot of time on profiling evil talking about is not assigning blame when someone's victimized because uh, um, a person who's sexually assaulted in no circumstance, regardless of whether they're a drug addict or anything else, deserves to be victimized. But we have to recognize that we are all willing to take certain levels of risk in our behavior and that that risk can place us into positions where we might be victimized. For instance, um, I, I was working on a case in Australia where the bike uh, group, the bikers, were going to bars and they were watching for drunk people to come out and try to get money out of the ATM. And they were capturing the ATM code and then stealing the guy's ID and then either beating him up or just waiting and going in and taking more money. Well, um, no question, he's still a victim of robbery if they take his property from him. He's still a victim of fraud if they're using the ATM wrongly, but he owns some responsibility by being drunk out in the middle of the night, 
with people around standing at an ATM trying to get things. And, and I oftentimes reflect on uh, something my wife told me once. We were walking out of a mall at nine o'clock at night and she said, what do you think about when you're walking out of the mall? And, and my response was, you know, like, are we going to stop and grab a burger on the way home? Or I wonder what I'll watch when I get home on TV. And I said, what do you think about? And she says, I'm looking at every man in the parking lot. I'm trying to figure out if my car's under a street light or if it's in the dark. And, and that's the difference. We can do a better job of reducing our own chance of being victimized by assessing our risk that we're willing to take every day in every activity we do. We talk about that a lot on this show in, in uh, obviously less official ways, situational awareness. And um, it, it, it goes a long way. And I, I definitely talk a lot, a lot about that with my own wife to, uh, you know, wh- where are you going today, where you intend to go this week, based on where she wants to go and what she wants to do. I insist I go with her to certain places. And other. I mean, go. it's just one of those things. Um, it's just one of those things. I, I really appreciate it. And, you know, that's a, the, the daunting thing, uh, Mike, is that and all the work that you do and all the people out there who do what you do, the, the what is left unsolved, what is open right now, it, the caseload is is innumerable, and it must be just really hard to keep your your optimism uh, when when you're tasked with essentially fighting the tide like this. It sounds like this work can be like trying to part the Red Sea with a tablespoon uh, at times, just just because of how much is being committed and and how how much effort and how much how many resources could actually reasonably allocated to fighting it all and solving it all and and uh and putting it right but uh i really thank you for the time here tonight and um in whatever final thoughts you have you can let people know how they can follow you i have uh your your um your url is in the description of the episode obviously thank you there's the 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 youtube channel you have a really nice loyal following over there tell everybody how to how to follow your work on a day-to-day basis well, th- thank you, Frank, and thanks for the chance to chat. I mean, it's just been really enjoyable, and and uh, I, I appreciate that. And folks, just at Profiling Evil, just look it up. It'll take you to YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and uh, and then watch for me on Court TV and News Nation, and and uh, I'm on weekly. Uh, talking about whatever the hottest criminal case is out there. So it'd be really fun to, to communicate with y'all. And, and Frank, I got to get you on Profiling Evil. Oh, geez. I, I mean, I, I don't know what I would contribute, but I would love to hang out with you anytime, Mike. You just you, you let me know, and, uh, and hopefully we can have you back on again to follow up on some of these open cases, especially if you write another book. You got friends over here in New York, and, and, and thank you for all the time tonight. Thank you, Frank. All right. Have a good night. There you go, everybody. There is Mr. Mike King profiling evil. And I think that we just wrapped that up in a perfect little profilingevil.com. Oh, I, I linked the YouTube on the YouTube description. But let me just profilingevil.com. Make sure that I get that in there so that later on there is no two ways about it. People are going to exactly good save off nice wow how'd you like that how did you like that that's a little something for you i mean i just always think about stuff like that and um and the people who are doing it day in day out takes all 
takes a strong constitution, as I said, personal constitution. Let's get to some super chats, make sure that we get everything in before we end a little bit early. We got a couple of minutes to go, but it's the finale, book club. Gotta do some work over there. Extra content, creating value, become a sponsor and keep start reading. Jay Britt says, hey, Frank, I'm really liking Mike King. You should get him back. You're the man. Oh, I would love to have Mike King back. Would love to, especially if there's breaking news on whatever, uh, any kind of front on any open cases, big trials, whatever the hell it is. And, and, uh, and there's so much more. So let's... Let's keep that one definitely on the back burner. Stostube says, Frank, just using a super chat as an example, as an excuse to say, great evening, my friend. Always a great show, but you know this. Thank you, sir. Frankly's rule. Stostube is a great, great man. The head of a great family. Uh, Rudy Pazoo with, with an extremely generous tip over here on quite frankly superchat.com says I really enjoy your show you punch far above your weight you're making a difference Rudy I'm glad I'm glad you think so and I'd like to uh, I like to see that show as this show as exactly that you know uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of problems that come with the super fame that other people have which I, I'd like to continue to climb as gradually as as uh, we are meant to climb, but it doesn't mean that quality isn't going to continue to increase and that this isn't going to be the best kept secret in some parts of the internet. And I'm glad that whoever is here is enjoying it now and always. Please. Uh, Gino says, we'll have to catch up tonight, but I love the Mothman stuff last night. I've seen Jeff in many documentaries and always stop by Point Pleasant when I have to go to Ohio for work. Uh, the story fascinates me. Love to you and the family, Francis. Yes. Now, we had, you know, two nights of investigative reporting, to be honest, in a row. Now, Mike King wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't assign himself to investigating what happened over that 13 or 14 months starting in 1966 with all the Mothman craziness going on in Point Pleasant, but it's still, uh, still, that's a story unto itself. A lot of stuff happening in a short amount of time and a lot of factors and open-ended questions. It's not nothing, that's for sure. Great stuff, great stuff. Let's go to Rumble. And see what's going on over there. Boy, this is jumping around. A lot of, lot of chatter, but no, no rumble rants. So now we go over to Foxhole on QuiteFrankly.tv. Witchy Poo says, "Hope all our Franklies are safe in Florida." Yes, yes. I contacted most of the people I know out there to see what's going on. I have a couple more to contact too, including Chris Ann Hall. Haven't spoken to her yet. Uh, Robert Sarns, thank you. Cave Toad, so funny to see the, demi the demon rats do the spider meme, the Spider-Man meme at each other. You get what you vote for, morons. You know, I wish it were that, Cave Toad, because if it's just about pointing blame and wanting to get away from it, that's one thing. But they're pointing blame and also suggesting the worst solutions, which goes to show that they're not really regretful. They're just trying to politically survive the operation at hand that they are 100% complicit in you know uh it th that would be you know it 
the Spider-Man, uh, yeah, whatever. You know, you know what I'm talking about. But I, uh, I appreciate the comment there, Cave Toad. Another, quite frankly, chat room classic right there. Uh, thank you, Bacon Slut, and thank you, Sean Joe, and Red Rum says C Blanche. And uh, where else? Tennessee Jed seventy eight. I appreciate you guys and gals. I'm releasing the scratching over on Foxhole. Just, just about done here. And I think that's it. I think that's all. Well, you guys and gals, I hope you enjoy yourself. Nothing on Rockfin. Everybody hanging out on Theta in the jacuzzi doing their thing. I appreciate you. And tomorrow night, we'll be capping off this week. I think Matt will be in. It's Friday night. And who knows what else. Let's see. Um... Frank and Frank Gel, uh, Frank G Frank Gel, Frank Zell just kind of touched me. I was wondering if the Zells were going to watch. He said, "Excellent interview, Frank. Really went smoothly. Guest was great, very clear and concise. Had a great disposition too. Seemed like a great guy. You had some excellent follow-up questions too, which your guest noted. That's some great feedback. Can't wait to have Frank and Jim on again to do some stuff there too. Boy, the Utah stuff." Wasn't any time to bring up the Hamlin stuff and everything else, but the the, the Utah thing that he broke with with uh, Deceived, that's not the only ritual abuse case that he did. Cult-like uh, case linked to the Mormon church again, Latter-day Saint cult stuff. Um, that's not the only one. We didn't have time to talk about that, but next time that Mike King is on, perhaps we can go deeper into those waters. All right, ladies and gents, thank you so much. If you're part of Book Club, then we're about to kick off our finale, and uh, we will see you later. Appreciate you all. Good night. Good night. And always remember, that's... Quite frankly, is film before a live studio audience, and now our super chatters, starting with Gino, Jay Britt, Stostube, Rudy Pazoo, and all of our great friends on Foxhole. I will see you guys tomorrow, where we will celebrate the end of the week with a, uh, I don't know, a mix of something, and I'll try to keep it as lighthearted as possible, since it is indeed Friday. All right, I'll see you on the other side of this. Good night, and talk tomorrow.